How do you maximize performance with your sales force? My name is Anthony Garcia, and I'm the host of the Catapulting Commissions podcast. Join me every week as we discuss topics such as performance or improving retention. And we do so by interviewing some of the top sales professionals and entrepreneurs around the world. Now, let's enjoy the show. We have a treat today. On today's show, you will learn from Anton Gunn. He is a former senior advisor to President Barack Obama. He's the world's leading authority on socially conscious leadership. He has a master's degree in social work from the University of South Carolina and was a resident fellow at Harvard University. He is the best-selling author of The Presidential Principles and has been featured in Time Magazine, Inc. Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, BBC News, NPR, Good Morning America, and most recently CNN. As an international speaker and consultant, he has worked with organizations like Microsoft, KPMG, Verizon Wireless, Aetna, American College of Surgeons, and the Boeing Company. Early in his career, he played SEC football and went on to become the first African-American in history elected to the South Carolina legislature for his district. He is now working as a C-level executive for an academic health system and serves on multiple boards. He has spent his life helping build diverse, high-performing teams in world-class leadership culture. If you want original insights and forward thinking that leads to greater engagement, higher performing teams, and better organizational cultures, you'll want Anton Gunn. And today on the Catapulting Commission Show, I'm excited to introduce Anton Gunn. Anton, thank you for joining the show. Happy to be with you, Anthony. It's great to be with the other AG that is dominating the game. Absolutely, man. And I'm telling you, man, I'm going to put a screenshot of this. I love the AG logo in the back. You know, we talked about it last time we connected. And, you know, that that logo is like, it's mine. And people are like, man, that's awesome. I see yours. I'm like, man, I like yours. (laughs) Yours is great, too, man. I mean, just like, you know, those letters AG, man, it ain't nothing better than that, man. I, I agree, man. So, so Anton, I'm telling you what, man, I'm super excited to have you here. You know, I was just sharing with my wife that my my guest on the show today was just on CNN a few days ago. So from <laughs> CNN to Catapulting Commissions, I feel like I'm in really good company here. So thank you for that. So your, your expertise is leadership and cultural change, yeah. which... On the Catapulting Commission show, we talk about either impacting sales professionals or impacting sales leadership. And I think you're going to fit right in today. So how did you get into this leadership and culture change? I mean, how did, how did you get into it? Tell us a little bit about your background that we haven't heard yet, and we'll go from there. Yeah, so that's that's a, a great place to start is really my background. So um, first thing I always like to explain to people is that I come from a military family. And when I say I come from a military family, Four generations of men in my family have put on a uniform to serve the United States of America. Uh, My great-grandfather served in both world wars. My grandfather served in World War II. I got an uncle that was a Korean War veteran, an uncle that's a Vietnam veteran. My dad was a Vietnam and Desert Storm veteran, and my dad's baby brother served in the Army six years, tried to volunteer for Vietnam, but they wouldn't let him go because his two older brothers had been involved in the conflict. And my brother served in the Navy. And so four generations of men uh, in my family have answered the call to service. And so for me, the prerequisite of any leader is the commitment to serve. 
you have to serve the people that you lead. So if you want to build great culture, build a culture of service. And that's what the military puts together is that everybody understands their responsibility is to serve, is to follow the instructions, to do something for the greater good, to be a part of the bigger mission. So that's where my life started. But there are other experiences that I had that really formatted this this whole framework around culture and leadership. And that's, of course, sports. I'm a former college football player playing in the SEC, some of the toughest football on the planet. And it's hard to be successful as a college football player if you don't have a good culture on your team. It's hard to win games consistently and sustain that if you don't have a good environment where everybody on the team feels valued, they feel respected, they feel included, and they feel like they have the opportunity to get better. And so that's what culture is. But if you're the leader of that team, if you're the head coach, if you're the quarterback, if you're the uh, captain of the football team, there's other things that you have to focus on as a leader if you want to keep that culture strong. And I'll just give it to you in three summary points, is that every person that shows up on any team, every person that comes to work at your organization, every person that you hire, every customer you have is asking three questions when they meet you every day. And the three questions that they're asking will determine whether they believe and buy into what you're talking about or whether they mentally quit on you and then later physically quit. And the three questions are, number one, do you care about me? Question number two is, will you help me? And question number three is, can I trust you? And every leader needs to understand that you have to be able to answer those questions, not with your words, with your actions. You have to be able to answer that I care about you, that I'm willing to help you, and that you can trust me. And so when I played football, my head coach didn't answer those three questions. I never felt he cared about me. I never felt that he was really interested in helping me. He was more interested in helping himself get a bonus check for us going to a bowl game. And I couldn't trust him because he said and did things that showed us that he wasn't trustworthy. And so my college career, we had a very mediocre team. We won uh, three games my first season, five games my second season, four games my third season, and six games my last season. We were very average. However, we had a whole lot of talent on the team. I played college football with 22 guys that went to the NFL. So you can't tell me that we weren't talented if we had 22 players who went to the NFL, but because we didn't have a good culture, a positive culture, a world-class culture on the team, we were mediocre. We were average at best, and we had a lot of players that quit. Some of them physically quit, and others mentally quit, like me. So for me, that started my journey and my experience in understanding what leadership is and what world-class culture is. But I've had a 20-year career in the most complex industry, which is the healthcare industry, really trying to build culture, develop great leaders so we can build diverse, high-performing teams and great leaders that everybody admires. Because that's what the American healthcare system needs if we want to make our country strong and take care of the people who need help. And so our doctors, our nurses, our social workers, anybody in healthcare, um, it's easy to fall into a toxic culture there because you spend your whole day saving somebody else's life and you can get tired and frustrated and burn out and it's easy to want to quit. But if you got a good leader who can build a great culture, you will do your best to not only serve the mission, but serve the entire world. And that's where I am. Man, one, 
thank you so much. I took a lot from there and I, and I, and presented a few challenges or not a few challenges, I guess a few points of clarification for me. Right. And uh, what I want to talk about is you mentioned that that culture of caring of people showing you care, helping people and creating trust. And it, and it causes me to think I have somebody in my organization right now that that came to me and she's at a, a career decision point where, uh, you know, things are going great. You know, she she's questioning, do I do I roll in this organization with you, Anthony? Or, you know, is it time for me to, to spread my wings and fly? And and, you know, I, I sat there. I'm like, I'm never going to hold you back. That, that, that would be a horrible leader if I did. And the fact you're bringing it to me with you're, you're still in the decision making phase is a sign of trust. And I'm, you know, you trust me. I'm gonna help you see a bigger picture and, and let you make the best educated decision. But the problem I have with that, right, is when you sit in this organization and you create organization change, it starts from the top down. But the average person sees an organization's culture from the bottom up. So if I go work in an organization and I'm on the ground level and then I start working with somebody in middle management. And I start working with somebody in regional management. And as you go up, how does that person on the bottom feel the message from the CEO of the top? Because some of these companies you're you're referencing are Fortune 500. They're some of the biggest companies in the world. Mm -hmm. And we can listen to the earnings calls. You can see the promotion on Wall Street. Our culture is about inclusion, diversity. Our culture is about becoming of acceptance. Our culture is about facilitating growth. How does that person on the bottom feel that? Yeah, see, that's a great question and, and a great thing to uh, to dive deep into. So the, the average person, the, the, again, the frontline person, um, they're not going to believe what you tell them. They're going to believe what they see. So if you tell, if a CEO stands up and says, we have a culture that is focused on diversity, inclusion, and we value people, and then they go to your website and they look at the executive team on the website and they don't see a person of color. They don't see any women. They don't see uh, anybody that has a physical disability. Uh, you don't have an uh, openly gay or lesbian transgender person in your leadership team. You can say that you believe in diversity all you want. That person on the front line doesn't see it because they know at the bottom of the organization, the, the organization is going to be diverse. But the question is, where is it and when it comes to leadership? And so if you really want people to feel what you say to be true, you have to demonstrate it in actions. You can't talk about it. You have to be about it. So you have to promote those things that you want to espouse as values for your organization. And, and I think you do that in two ways. And this is where, you know, I want people to understand is that no organization is perfect. They haven't figured out all the challenges. But the first thing you have to do is you have to paint a visual picture of what success looks like. So even if you don't have great diversity in your leadership or you don't have a lot of women in your executive team, you need to talk about where women sit in your organization and where you want them to sit five or 10 years now. So you may not be there yet, but help that frontline person see where you're going and why you're trying to get there. You got to be able to explain to them where you're going and why you're trying to get there and why they buy in. The second context of that is how and where you communicate. This is the thing where I think most leaders fail in the modern environment. Because of technology, we allow ourselves to devolve to communicating by email, by text messages, by chat groups and instant messenger, rather than actually getting around and seeing people face to face, seeing firsthand. 
I mean, how many CEOs spend their year traveling to every facility that they operate around the country, going to meet with their retail stores? I was talking to an executive from T-Mobile just yesterday about this conversation, is that uh, when she was an executive for T-Mobile, she made it a point to visit all 1,100 of her stores in her region. And she wanted to get around to see the manager face-to-face, to see what the culture was like on the ground, and see what she needed to do to help to change the culture. But some executives resort to just, I'm going to send my weekly email, I'm going to send my weekly newsletter, I'm going to do this pre-recorded video and just post it online or send messages out through instant message. You cannot connect with people when they don't get to see you, touch you, and feel you face-to-face. And so for me, frontline people will see right through any leader's message if they don't, number one, paint a vision around where we're trying to go, why we're trying to get there, and number two, get around and actually have real-life conversations with people and create a structure where all your leaders below you have that same approach to communicating with the front line. 100%. That communication by technology, it is eliminating that personal connection. I mean, me and you are talking right now, but, you know, and this is an audio podcast, but we're looking at each other and we're, and we're, we're sharing that connection. I think the ability to text message or instant communication ruins the overall impact of communication. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, as you're saying, getting out on the front lines, one of the things that comes to mind, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, you know, I hear you. Anton, and, and I bring you in and you consult from my organization and you you deliver this message to the C-suite and everyone's like, hey, we're going to go do this. But doing it once and doing it consistent on a schedule is a totally different impact mm-hmm. because I've I've had leaders that have said, hey, I'm going to communicate. I'm going I'm to I'm up my communication level. Or I'm going to do this. And, you know, I'll get the one phone call out of the blue or I'll get the and then I never hear from this person again. And I know that the higher you go up in the organization, the higher responsibility, the more 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 things are demanding for your time. But I, I believe that there is a value in adding that communication mm-hmm. into your schedule. Mm-hmm. Being, you know, having an assistant saying, hey, on this time, you are going to make a physical phone call or you are going to travel and we're going to schedule it three months in advance. And you're going to treat this with the same intensity as if this said, hey, this is your spouse's day to deliver your child, mm-hmm. and this is a non-negotiable schedule on your block. Do you, how do you, how do you deliver that? Because yeah. or how do you how do you communicate that that it has to be consistent? Yeah. So so the thing um, I will uh, always say that the most successful organization has good habits and good rituals. You got to have habits and rituals. So habits are things that you do repeatedly over and over again, and they become subconscious. Like sometimes people have a habit of stuttering or they have a habit of saying, um, and when they say, um, when they speak, it is subconscious. They don't know they're even saying it, but they do it so much. It has become a habit. And then a ritual, just think about it. Think about people who, who go to church every Sunday or people who go to the gym three days a week or go five days a week. It is a ritual for them to get up at 4 a.m., go to the gym, run for 45 minutes on a treadmill, work out, and then leave. It becomes a ritual. And because you have good habits and good rituals, you start to see results of change. And so it can't be one time. You literally have to make it a habit. 
Uh, I work with a lot of healthcare organizations, and we have this concept in healthcare, particularly in hospitals. It's called the sacred 60. So the sacred 60 is you pick one hour every day, the same hour every day, five days a week, and you schedule no meetings during that hour, and you spend that hour rounding on your team. And what rounding on your team is going to meet with the individual people that you manage and supervise and ask them about how are things going? Is there anything you need to do your job better? Can you let me see what you do from your perspective? Or if you're a physician, round on your patients, walk into your patient's room, see how they're doing, see how they're responding to the medication. Is there anything that they need? And whenever they tell you what they need, your responsibility then is to fix it, is to solve it, is to make it right. Because the habit of having a sacred 60 allows you one time every day to experience a different aspect of your culture, a different aspect of your team, a different aspect of your organization, and different people. And when you build in that kind of habit, it begins to drive culture change because people now start to expect to see you. And when they expect to see you, they're going to come prepared to give you more information than you coming by randomly one time saying, hey, how's it going? And the first time they say, oh, it's going okay. And you keep it moving. You can't have that kind of approach as a leader. You have to have a habit and a ritual of engaging intentionally with the people that you lead. I think that sacred 60 is a great point. And, and I was writing it down. I'm thinking about my own organization and the people I lead. And, you know, can I do a sacred 60 or can I do a sacred 30? Whatever it is, I think it's something that, you know, I'm definitely going to put in my in my calendar and commit to. And what comes what comes to mind and the takeaway I got from you here is as the leader, it is my job to deliver that value. It is my job to get your engagement back with me. And I I think, you know, the easy way is, is I've had organizations that, hey, man, here's my office hours. If you need me, call me or or. Hey, man, whatever you need me, just shoot me a text. No, I, you're the leader. Text out. Hey, yeah. you know, I think things are going great for you. Um, you know, I, I've, I've made a habit right now within my organization of just, hey, every time I'm reaching out to somebody and I thank you for your time, man. Thank you for your hard work today. And when I do reach out, there's always something from the last time we had a conversation that lets this person know, hey, I'm genuinely interested in what is going on. And I remember and I retain. Now, no, I don't have the perfect memory and I have a lot of ways to retain things. And, you know, that could be a whole nother podcast show on, on how I retain conversations with people in my organization. But when that person feels that and receives that, I mean, that that goes from, hey, my upper level manager, my VP, my CEO, they know my name. They remember my wife's name. They care about things. And, and one of the greatest CEOs that that I've worked for and and, and he is, uh, you know, I was really lucky. I got into an organization at the time. He was the president for, you know, nearly a half a billion dollar business. He was directly responsible in hiring me. And as he climbed the ranks and moved in to become a CEO for one of the largest medical device uh, companies in the world, every time I saw him, it was, hey, Anthony, how are things going? He remembered that my goal was to own my second home by the time I was 32. And that was that was part of our conversation. It was part of our dialogue. To me, that was, OK, You've you've made it a point. You've reached out. You you had a schedule. I knew once a quarter I would get an unsolicited email or phone call or text message, and that truly does create that 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 drive to want to be working for somebody like that. Yeah. And you know what you just said? 
uh, Anthony, I think just so profound. That leader demonstrated that he cared about you because he remembered what's important to you. And so when I talk about, do you care about me or um, will you help me? My context is, do you care enough about me to know what's important to me? Not what's important to your business goals or not what's important to you as a company, but what's important to me? What do I really care about? Do Am I working this job because I want to own my second home by the time I'm 32? Or am I working this job to put money away for my child's college? Or am I working this job hard and want to be successful because I want to take care of my mom? Or maybe I just want to get flat out rich. Whatever it is, do you know what's important to me? And do you remember what's important to me? And how are you um, giving me feedback to show that you remember what I told you in my interview about what was important to me? Do you remember what I said on my one-year anniversary around what I wanted to accomplish? And then secondarily, are you giving me the tools, the information, and the resources to be able to achieve those things? Those are the questions that every person is asking. Absolutely. And I I think that that ability to know what it is this person wants, what this person needs, and remember that, you know, you can develop and, and facilitate a career-long relationship with this person. Now, I want to switch gears in here a second here, and I want to I want to pick your brain on something. You know, this is the Catapulting Commission show. A lot of the people listening are leaders in a sales organization that manages sales team. 34% is the turnover rate for sales professionals right now. Right. You go across all specters, 34% is the average. There's companies that have a little higher, companies that have a little lower. How, how can we take some of these principles and chop that number down a bit? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I, I do a lot of presentations to organizations where sales is a part of their, their business. And I will tell you the context of what we have been talking about is what's going to mitigate that turnover rate. Okay. Um, Toxic culture is destroying every organization. And sales organizations are notorious for toxic culture, where it's it's all about the KPIs. It's all about your goals. Did you hit your goals? I don't care about anything else. Did you hit your goals? When you don't care about people and you don't care about who they are as a person and all you care about is their outcomes, their goals, outcomes, they might deliver those outcomes, but they're going to quit on you. Because they don't, nobody wants to be in an organization where they don't care. And here's here's how I explain it. People will quit on an idea. They will quit on a team. They'll quit on a product. And they will quit on a company. But they will not quit on people that they have relationships with. You know, Gallup, um, Gallup is like one of the best um, organizations that surveys employees. And Gallup has a study called the Q12 study. And it measures employee engagement. And the higher the employee engagement, the more likely an employee is to stay long-term and not quit. So employee engagement is a definite measurement of whether you got a good culture or bad culture. Well, inside of Gallup's Q12 study, there's one question on the survey that really speaks to the heart of everything that we're talking about. And that question is, do you have a best friend at work? Now, some people might be thinking, a best friend at work? I don't have no best friend at work. My, my best friend is a kid I grew up with. You know, I just work with these people. I, I you, know, you know, they got a job, I got a job. And so I didn't come to work to be touchy-feely. Well, the concept is this. 
if you have a best friend in life, you know that person cares about you. They, they, they love you for your good things and they love you for your bad things. They're your best friend, right? Okay. Your best friend will also help you when you have troubles or when you fall down and when you make mistakes or when you need an extra 50 bucks because, you know, you got a ticket that you couldn't afford to pay. Your best friend will always help you. And then thirdly, you can tell your best friend your deepest, darkest secrets, and you know they're not going to betray you and tell the entire world that you told them about uh, something that you did wrong. And so the question is, if you can have a best friend in life who always has your back, that cares about you, will help you, and that you can trust, can you build that same kind of environment at work? Because if you got a best friend at work, when the job requires you to stay an extra two hours after work to get something done, your best friend's going to show up with you. When you're in pain or hurting because something went wrong, your best friend is going to care that it went wrong with you and do their best to help make it right. And the third thing is if you got a best friend at work, you can trust that they got your back and you got theirs. And so leaders who run sales organizations have to learn how to teach these skills to their teams. First of all, they have to demonstrate that. They got to inspire people through their actions, which is like the first principle of my book. Um, But you got to lead by example. But more importantly, you got to build that kind of culture amongst your team because people won't quit on people that they care about. They don't quit on people that they are getting help from and they won't quit on people that they trust. And that's how you reduce the turnover is to really demonstrate these principles inside your sales organizations. Hey, I wanted to take a quick minute and interrupt this episode for a second. I hope you're enjoying what you've heard thus far. Are you a sales professional or do you manage a team of sales professionals? I imagine you know someone who struggles with complacency. I'm talking about the sales rep who has all the tools to be a top performer, but just can't seem to get past the mental hurdle that is holding them back. I completely understand and I relate with you. That is why I've created a detailed approach on how to get out of this stage of complacency and put yourself in position to achieve your next sales goal. Be sure to visit my website, catapultingcommissions.com. Once there, you can find the link to pick up a copy of my international best-selling book, Catapulting Commissions. Now, let's get back to our show. You know, I think that as you're sharing that, I look right now at the organization and you talked earlier, right? This toxic culture for salespeople is 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 somewhat acceptable because you you have organizations that say, "Well, you know what? I pay you a lot of money, right?" And and as and I've been very fortunate and privileged to to work in organizations that that can say, "If you do well, you're in the top one percent of income earners in the U.S." And boom, I pay you to show up. I pay you for results. I pay you to put numbers up. And if you're not going to hit these numbers, you know, I can replace you. The problem with that is the higher the stakes, right? The higher the revenue, uh, you know, if you, if you build a $10 million team, if you or build a hundred million dollar team, that turnover is also higher. Mm-hmm. That expense mm-hmm. is also higher, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if I, you know, if I had a lemonade stand and I had a girl selling lemonade for me on the block and she quit tomorrow, I could find someone without any work. Correct. But if that if that person was responsible for creating the entire process of lemonade, testing it, testing, testing the sugar levels, getting all the packaging, the labeling, everything dialed in, they're much more impactful. Mm-hmm. Well, if that person's responsible for that lemonade stand being a global distribution and you are that person, 
there's no way in the world that I'm going to let you leave without letting you know what I need. Yes. And, and because I need that, that's how, that's how, you know, that's how we simply, you know, as a leader, we fall into that trap that, well, because I need you, you're going to feel that I need, we take away that human element of it. And when you go through that, you, you talked about, you know, the human element. I do think that that best friend at work builds that human element. And I think a true leader is as you manage a team, I have colleagues that are leaders in, in various different organizations that are like, my team's not my friends, they're my employees. And, and I hear that. And, and I've always, I've had a, you know, I've, I've managed sales teams that have been over a hundred of people. I've managed sales teams as small as six and seven. And when I hear that, I cringe because I look at it and I'm like, no, that, that, that's wrong. I want you to be my friend. I want you to be your friend. And by being my friend or quote unquote, my best friend, you do realize they're never forced to make a decision between work and friendship. And once you establish that mutually beneficial relationship, then you can't have a friend at work. I mean, my best friend, one of my best friends, as we're talking, she is competing for a world championship bobsled in Attenberger, Attenberger, Germany. I think that's how I pronounce it. You know, I've known for the past couple of weeks she's training. And so I don't call her like, hey, let's just get, dude, we're 13 hours apart. I shot her a text message yesterday. Dude, go kick that, you know, kick butt, be a badass, et cetera. She responded, I got this. Give me the fist pump. My best friend, I know that. I'm not making her pick between, hey, your career, which is your sport, and talking to me on the phone for 45 minutes so I can catch up. Yeah. That same principle applies in managing a team. It's okay to, I mean, would you say yeah. it's okay to have a friend that reports to you? Yeah, so here, here's how I, I frame it up. Anybody that says, um, these are not my friends, uh, these are my employees, uh, this is what they're missing. Um you're missing that nearly 2 million Americans quit their job every single month. And 58% of them, when asked why are they quitting their jobs, they say it's because of management and the culture of the organization. It ain't about pay. You know, because when you got a 2% unemployment rate nationally or 3% unemployment rate nationally, that means everybody is starved for talent. Everybody's looking for talent. So that person that quits you today is going to go find another job tomorrow. And if they're high performers, you don't want to lose your high performers because your high performers are going to cost you more to replace them than they earn in the organization. And so my context is you got to treat people like they're more than just a widget, more than just you know a cog in the wheel, that they have lives, they have a mindset, they have values, they have things that are important to them. And your responsibility is to learn what that is. And yes, you don't have to be buddy, buddy, best friend. Let's go have a beer every night after work. But you got to be friendly enough to know who they are, know what's important to them. And here's the other point, Anthony, that is really important. You have to be vulnerable and transparent enough as a leader to share what's important to you. Because if you want to build trust, you have to share first to build trust. And people need to feel like, I know who you are. I know what makes you tick. I know what inspires you, Anthony. I know what motivates you, Anthony. Because if I understand what motivates you, then I'll run through the wall for you because you've been clear about what your focus is on, what your interest is, and what you care about. So that's how you build friendships. It's not necessarily having a beer every Tuesday night with somebody after work, but it's somebody who's got your back, 
you got theirs, you trust them, you know who they are, and they're not just towing the company line for the sake of towing the company line. Because otherwise, those people will quit and they'll go work for your competitor and be much more successful. So you got to be dialed in to your team and building good relationships. Absolutely. There, that vulnerability you mentioned, you, you know, the the newer leader or, or someone who doesn't, or, you know, I would say, yeah, the newer leader, they look at vulnerability as a sign of, a sign of weakness. If I show I'm vulnerable, my team's going to view I'm weak. I look at it the opposite. If, 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 if I have a leader that shows and shares their vulnerabilities with me, I look at it as a sign of strength and mutual respect that, hey, man, you have enough self-awareness, enough emotional intelligence to say, hey, man, these, this is what's vulnerable to us. Or these are the challenges that are, that are going to impact me and I'm sharing them with you. I trust you with this, yeah. you know, and, and if someone's going to take those vulnerabilities you share and exploit them or do, eh, there's somebody you don't want in your organization anyways. Mm-hmm. But I do think that that's, um, that, that, that's a key insight. And, and the number one mistake that, that when people ask me in, in uh, my position of leadership and, Hey, I want to get into leadership, you know, what is it? I'm like, well, I tell you this, there's, there's no rule, but people often get promoted to leadership without being taught how to be a leader. Correct. And if you don't have that innate drive to say, okay, I'm in a position of leadership, I need to make sure that I'm in a leadership mentality. I'm acting presidential at all times because someone's always watching me. Mm-hmm. And that that is a, that's a big mistake organizations make. And the other mistake that people make wanting to get into leadership, you don't need that title of leadership to be a leader. No. Right? If you want to be the president or CEO of a Fortune 500 company, then act like one today. Correct. Put the numbers up today. And speaking of presidential, let's talk about this. So your book, Presidential Principles, has become an international bestseller. And it is designed to get the most out of leadership. You know, can you walk us through the premise behind the book? What are some of the concepts and what do you, you know, what can you share with us today? Yeah, so that that's a great place to start. Um so, uh, you know, I told you my family um, is four generations of military service in our country. And it's because of that military service that I have been able to have personal life experiences with five U.S. presidents. And literally, when I say five, I'm talking about the last five presidents of the United States. I've had what I call presidential encounters with all of them, starting with Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush's administration when I was 17 years old, and most recently with President Donald Trump's administration um, uh, a year ago, a year last June. So so here's the context of those experiences. Uh, They all haven't been positive, and they all haven't been negative. And um, I can tell you a hundred different stories of how I got these opportunities, but here's what I want everybody to take away. The reason why I titled the book the presidential principles. After my encounters, what I began to understand is that the president of the United States is the highest office for our country, the highest leader. Whether you love him or hate him, and it doesn't matter, it's the highest office. It's the most influential and impactful leadership position in the United States of America. And some would argue the most influential and impactful leadership position on the planet Earth, given the value of the United States of America. So if you're in that position as a leader, you have a disproportionate ability to impact lives beyond those that you see every day. 
And so if I throw out the names Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, Roosevelt, Kennedy, we all know these men's name, and they all have been dead and gone for a long time. But right here today, you and I benefit from the impact of the decisions that they make. And so my book, The Presidential Principles, is around teaching the average everyday person that you can have a presidential impact on the lives that you touch. You don't have to be president of the United States. You might just be president of your household, or you maybe be president of your company, or president of your team that you lead inside your organization, or maybe you're just president of yourself. So the question is, are you living presidential principles that inspire other people to action and have a lasting positive impact in their lives? Because the greatest presidents, that's what they do. They inspire people to action and have a lasting impact. Much of the technology that we're using right now today to to communicate, to do this podcast, you're on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast was because of the presidential impact of John F. Kennedy in the space race to put a man on the moon. The reason why we have GPS in our cars is because of John F. Kennedy in the space race. The reason why we have weather satellites that and a whole news channel called the Weather Channel is because of his impact from the 1960s. So what I teach in the book are some principles that I've distilled down from my encounters. So not all those presidents. I don't talk about Kennedy and Lincoln and Jefferson in the book. What I do talk about is what I learned from my encounters with George Herbert Walker Bush's administration, Bill Clinton's administration, George W. Bush's administration, Barack Obama's administration, who I had the pleasure of actually working for Barack Obama. Uh, The other four presidents I didn't work for, I just had encounters with their teams. But I worked for Obama's administration for three and a half years. And then, of course, Donald Trump's administration is the last one. So I can't give you all the principles, but I'll definitely give your audience a way that if they want to get the book, I'll give you a link of where you can get a free chapter of the book and read about my very first encounter. And then also where you can get the book, and I'd be happy to autograph it for any of your listeners. But the first principle is kind of where we started when we were talking about sales teams, is that the best presidential principle in the first one is you have to inspire others through your action, that your leadership must lead. It must be a verb and not a noun. Your actions as a leader will always be more important than anything you say to people. I kind of told you that. Don't tell me what you know. Show me what you do. And if you want to be build contagious energy inside your company, inside your organization, you got to inspire people through your actions, not your words. People will see what you do and follow what you do, not what you say. And the most authentic leaders, the ones, the presidents that have had the greatest impact are the ones who are living proof, to quote one of my favorite hip hop groups of all time, Gangstar, is you got to be living proof of what you do. And if you do that, you'll have a lasting impact. Man, that lasting impact, you know, as I'm, as I'm hearing you say that, I think about my lasting impact in home, right? You, you talked about, you know, you're the president of an organization, the president of your home, right? Right now, you know, I, I tell my kids and, and I tell my wife, you know, you know, there's times where, where my wife and I, we, we have disagreements with each other. We have disagreements with other family members. We have disagreements in a professional environment. 
And lately, you know, we've been challenging ourselves. Okay, we're going to be the bigger person. Mm-hmm. We're, we're going to be the bigger person because yeah. we are going to have that presidential impact. Yes. Two things that you say that. One, it's not always easy. No. Because there are, there are times, I mean, there are times where I've had conversations with my wife. She's like, I don't want to be the bigger person. I, I, I want to say this, this, and this. No, we're not going to say that. We're going to be the bigger person mm-hmm. because, you know, here's the lasting impact. As we become the bigger person, we have eyes on us and our kids at all times and i've i've learned i've seen when i react and i don't respond to a situation my family reacts mm-hmm. but if i respond correct and i'm calculated and, and i have a methodical approach to what i'm going to deliver everyone else does correct. same thing in the organizations right in this presidential approach and, and you know I'm, i manage a team now i look at them okay i you're going to, I challenge myself. You're going to have a hard time for my team to get me to react. I'll respond, but I'm not going to react. Cause when I react, sometimes it may not be how I want to respond. And so I really got to think about what is that lasting impact? And the other thing is when people, you know, let's talk about big picture, right? You, you want to be a presidential impact. You, you do want to be the CEO of an organization or, or you want to build a personal brand to, you know, seven, eight, nine figures. I think people get get this uh, ego involved with presidential. Like, hey, my impact has reached ten million people. Mm-hmm. My impact reached, mm-hmm. you know, two million downloads or or three million uh, Instagram followers. Whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Your impact's your impact. And if if I can change one person's approach, then I've done my job. And that's that. And when you have that approach on yourself. It's really easy to be presidential and really easy to have that that impact. You know, I've I've recently had a lot of people, and we talked about it before we start recording, reaching out to me, sending me DMs. I mean, I'm getting text messages from friends I haven't spoken to in years, like, hey man, your content's motivating, your content's inspiring. And just one of those, I was like, man, I got like teary eyed. I'm like, dude, there's somebody out there that can mm-hmm. be impacted by you setting the example. And I think that that's great. You, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the very first principle, right? You know. It's essentially show me, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Don't tell me, right? Yes. Leadership's a verb, yeah. not a noun. Yeah. And that is that is something that I that I'm going to I'm going to steal from you with pride because as I start to develop people to be leaders within my organization, that's one of the things we'll say, hey, leadership's a verb, it's not a noun. It's what you're doing, not because it says you're a leader mm-hmm. or you're in like the whatever, you know, every every organization has a club that they move like the next development candidates to, you know trainers or mm-hmm. key staff or whatever you want to call yourself it, that's that's not leadership leadership's what you did to get yourself in that position yeah yeah and and then teach that you know that's one of the contexts that I that I add value to that the greatest leaders are the ones who don't mind teaching what they know um and the 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 main point is that Les Brown had his famous quote um don't preach what you don't know and don't teach where you don't go if you've been there and done that then you should feel free to teach that to other people because your goal as a leader is not about you right now. It's about your legacy. And legacy is really tied to your significance in the lives of other people. Um, Don't just be successful. You should try to be significant. Um, Miles Monroe had a great quote that says, success without a successor is a failure. And if you don't use your gifts, your talents, and what you have built to leave something for those that come along after you, you might be successful, but you'll never be significant. And the leaders who teach what they know to other people 
are the ones who are significant. Like I'm, I'm a beneficiary right now at this moment from the woman who hired me at 23 years old when I was a 23-year-old kid, fresh out of college, didn't know anything about anything. What I do every day is a direct reflection of what she taught me back in 1996. And so Lenora Reese is one of the greatest leaders in my mind and my life because she was the woman who gave me my first career opportunity. But she taught me a lot of these principles that I'm teaching now. So in the book, The Presidential Principles, yeah, I talk about my presidential encounters, but I will tell you, Lenora Bush Reese is the most presidential person that I've ever met because of what she did to teach me what she knew and invested in me. And I am her living legacy. That's good to hear that because there's somebody listening right now that needs to need, needed to hear that because you might be someone's first leader. Yes. Yes. Right. And if you set the tone right, yes, you can also be the most impactful. Leader. Yes. And that that really is, you know, in, in leadership. Right. You know, I recently put a box. There's no ego in leadership. You can't have an ego in leadership. But if I'm privileged enough and, to be your first leader then I want my leadership to be a lifelong impact. And I have to treat every person with that same same, same intensity. And I, I think that's awesome because some of my most impactful leaders have been from the earliest stages of my professional yeah. career. And uh, that, that I'm, I'm glad you said that. Speaking of lasting impact here, as, as we're starting to wind down, I have to ask this, and, I, and I'm sure you hear this all the time, right? Working for President Barack Obama and working in that administration, if you could summarize a two-minute three-minute takeaway from what you've learned from working directly with him, his leadership philosophy, his leadership principles that you apply in your organization and that our, our listeners can apply in their organization. What would that be? Oh, yeah. So this this is a great one. It's an easy one. I actually wrote a blog post about this about two years ago. It's called Be Like Barack. And, I, and I, I came up with the Be Like Barack because everybody knows there's a famous guy from Chicago that everybody really wanted to be like, and they wanted to be like him so much that they created a commercial and a song that explained how everybody could be like this guy. And I'm not talking about Barack Obama. I'm talking about Michael Jordan. You know, everybody remembers the Gatorade commercial, like Mike, I wish I could be like Mike. Well, I flipped that to say, I wish I could be like Barack. And here's the ways that I want to be like him. Number one, Barack Obama had a unquestionable commitment to his family. He didn't mind showing you or telling you that he loved his wife and his children. So for every leader in an organization, if you have a family, you should not be afraid to make sure people know that you care about your family. And if you don't care about your family, then you got to build a kind of community where you care about your family. That's the first principle. The second principle that I learned from Barack Obama is always surround yourself with people who are smarter than you that even though you might have great intelligence, surround yourself with people who know more than you and listen to them. Because that's one of the things that Barack Obama did is that he listened to me. When I tell him to do something, he would do it. So even though he was a leader, he listened to the folks that he led. And so that's a principle that I always encourage people to adopt and I adopt it everywhere. The third principle that I'll give you is, is one that is the hardest for us. And I think we kind of mentioned this earlier when you, you, you were talking about you and your wife not wanting to be the bigger person. <laughs> it doesn't matter how aggressive the attack was, how harsh the criticism was, or what the complaint was, you never, ever saw Barack Obama lose his cool. 
He maintained his emotional composure and his emotional intelligence in all environments. And if you want to be a good leader, you got to find a way to never let your highs get too high, never let your lows get too low, always stay in the middle, never ever react to what someone says or does, but always respond, be thoughtful in your response. And so Barack Obama remaining calm was one of the most important things. And I'm going to give you this bonus one. There's seven principles I talked about in that blog post, but here's the bonus one. This is the one that says, um, always be bold and audacious in everything that you want to do. Now, I think you have to be pretty bold and audacious to be a black man named Barack Hussein Obama and think that you can be president of the United States of America. Okay. I mean, I, can you imagine how many times somebody told him that's the stupidest idea known to man that you think you can yeah. run for president in America? But he had the unmitigated gall to believe in himself, have the right mindset to believe that he can do big things. And every leader in every organization should be teaching their teams that you can be bigger than me. You can do big things. You can bring the next big idea that changes this company. You can be the person that revolutionizes our bottom line because of what you did. And so I teach people that you can be the biggest thing we've ever seen. You can do more than anything I've ever seen. You can transform anything if you have the right belief system. Your mindset is more important than your skill set. That's what I learned from Barack Obama. Mindset is everything. Man, I, that is very hard to top. And I'm not even going to add anything to that. I mean, Anton, be bold and audacious, unquestionable commitment to your family. Surround yourself with smarter people. And you're absolutely right. Never lose your cool. That is, uh, it's easy to write down. It's easy to say. And, it's uh, hard to do. You know, it is very hard to do. You, you know, you think about the the attacks an elected official, you mm-hmm. know, President Barack Obama, you know, we'll just use him, we're talking about the attacks on his character, his, mm-hmm. his, his mm-hmm. family, everything, mm-hmm. and to never lose your cool. Never. You know, that's, that's admirable. I mean, I think about times I, I've had my character or something attacked, and I'm like, man, and you yeah. get up in arms, and you're like, you know, you're be the bigger person, be the bigger person. For yeah. him, it was just, it's it hard. was innate. You know, you when, yeah. when anybody attacks you, the natural response is one to respond, is to react right to it and say, that's a lie. Stop calling me a lie. That's not true. And he never did that. I mean, it was almost like it was like, you know, I don't know if he was a Buddhist monk or something that he he kept that kind of control. <laughs> but I, I never I mean, I saw him behind closed doors be bothered by some things, but I, he would never let people see him erect, react emotionally because he thought it would uh, diminish everything he was trying to do because people will focus more on your re- reactions then they'll focus on what you're actually trying to do. And we don't want to send those kind of mixed messages. That's very true. I think that's a, yeah, it's a look in the mirror today with you, Anton. I appreciate that one. All right. Well, as we wrap this up, one, I appreciate you giving giving uh, our listeners a, a link to get the chapter and in, in that uh, for presidential principles. I'll have that in the show notes. You can catch that on the Catapulting Commission's podcast website. Uh, and I'll also share that on all the social media profiles using the hashtag catapulting commissions. So, a- Anton, 
do thank you today. How can people follow you? How can people get more value from you? You know, I took a leadership quiz on your website. Thought that was kind of cool. Put me next to Franklin Roosevelt. I felt pretty presidential at that yeah, point. Yeah, man. So how can people get more of that? Yeah, so great. So the home for all things uh, Anton Gunn is AntonGunn.com. That's where you can sign up for my newsletter, take my quizzes, read my blog, AntonGunn.com slash blog. If you want to follow me on social, um, I encourage people to connect with me and follow me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active. And I spend a lot of time posting and sharing and dialoguing about leadership principles on LinkedIn at Anton J. Gunn. And you also can find me on Twitter, on Instagram, and of course, on uh, Facebook. And very happy to engage with people in all of those those venues. But LinkedIn is where I spend the most time and I try to add the most value there. Great. Again, Anton, thanks. I'll have all of those links in the show notes for today's show. Again, Anton, it is Saturday morning, East Coast to West Coast. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. Again, I just want to mention it because it's super Super impactful. I think my, my listeners need to hear from CNN to Catapulting Commission. <laughs> I appreciate being the next interview in line, brother. Yeah, Thank you, you so much. And uh, dude, I'll see you on the next one, brother. All right. Take care. Thanks, man. Well, that does it for today's episode on Catapulting Commissions with Anthony Garcia. If you found some value in today's show, please be sure to head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating. Don't forget to subscribe to Catapulting Commissions. That way you get notified of new episodes every week. Lastly, please take a screenshot of today's show and share it on Instagram. Every week, I'll be giving away a signed copy of my best-selling book to one person who tags me at Anthony P. Garcia 99 and includes the hashtag Catapulting Commissions. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to helping you achieve higher commissions.